Welcome to the Pastor Nick Santo Podcast, a podcast designed to help you live closer to Jesus. We hope that God uses it to encourage and empower you in His plan for your life. Now let's get into today's content. Good evening again. Welcome back to our service. Uh, if you guys have your Bibles, you want to just open up to 2 Samuel chapter 7, just so that you're ready. If you don't have a Bible, the ushers are moving up and down the aisles right now with Bibles in their hand. You can get their attention. They'll pass a Bible off to you. Uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7. Um, you heard the announcer that Saturday morning discipleship. I know I said it a couple weeks ago, but I, I, I get to share this Saturday. So if you guys want to come on out, uh, 8 a.m. Saturday morning and just spend some time in the Word, in fellowship with some other uh, believers and, and sharing in the things of God, feel free to join us for that. Uh, also, um, I, I know you know many of you are aware of my my cousin's situation. Um, Forty one years old, she was diagnosed with uh, brain cancer at thirty six. She was given a year. She lasted five, but she did pass away um, just a, a few days ago, Saturday night. So um, pray for her. Her well, not her. She's in heaven. She knew God. She was very sound in faith. Uh, she left a very good testimony. Um, but her husband, who also is a Christian, is left with six kids. Uh, three adopted foster kids, one with special needs, three biological, and uh, his world just got flipped upside down again. So uh, his name is Phil. You can pray for him and uh, and pray. You know, we'll be going up, my family, for the um, for the funeral, not next week, but I think the week after. And um, and and then on top of it all, I think two Phil, the the husband, and then his son both were diagnosed with COVID like immediately after. So now they're like isolated from everyone. It's just this crazy whole thing. So just pray for them. Pray for us because we're going up there. Uh, I'll be with my whole family. Uh, many of them don't know the Lord, and so just how He would use us there. I know He's got a plan. He's doing something. So I uh, appreciate your prayers in that. Uh, but we're in Second Samuel chapter seven. So um, why don't we turn there and. Um, I want to read the first 17 verses to lay the groundwork in the context. We will go through the whole chapter uh, tonight, but I I do want to read at least that much, and then we'll pray, and then we'll get into it. And so uh, verse 1, it says this. It says that it came to pass that when the king sat in his house, and the Lord had given him rest round about from all his enemies, that the king said unto Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwelleth within curtains. And Nathan said to the king, go and do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. And of course, uh, David is implying that he wants to build something more legit. He wants to build a temple uh, for the ark, a place for the Lord. And it says that it came to pass that night that the word of the Lord came unto Nathan, saying, go tell my servant David, thus saith the Lord. Shalt thou build me a house for me to dwell in? Whereas I have not dwelt in any house since the time that I brought up the children of Israel out of Egypt, even to this day, but have walked in a tent and in a tabernacle. In all the places wherein I have walked with all the children of Israel, spake I a word with any of the tribes of Israel, whom I commanded to feed my people Israel, saying, Why build ye not me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, so shall you say unto my servant David, thus saith the Lord of hosts, I took thee from the sheep coat, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people, over Israel. And I was with thee, whithersoever thou wentest, wherever you went. 
and have cut off all your enemies out of your sight and have made you a great name like unto the name of the great men that are in the earth. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more. Neither shall the children of wickedness afflict them any more as before time. And as since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and have caused thee to rest from all thine enemies, also the Lord tells you that he will make you a house. God saying essentially that from the time of the judges to the current time that he had put them in their, in their established place and given them peace from their enemies. And now God says, moreover, I will build you a house. And when your days are fulfilled and you shall sleep with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you, which shall proceed out of your bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. If he commit iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men, and with the stripes of the children of men. But my mercy shall not depart away from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. And thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. According to all these words and according to all this vision, so did Nathan speak unto David. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you tonight, Lord, for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the significance of this passage and not only what it means to the whole history of man and the history of your word and your truth, but what it means for us, Lord, as we consider who you are and the way that you deal with human beings and those that have been called by you. And so I ask tonight, Lord, that you would fill us with your spirit, that you would give us understanding. I pray, Lord, that you would give us a softening, that whatever it is that we need to hear from you tonight concerning your plan for our present and future, that you would help us, Lord, to yield to you in trust and in faith. So fill us now and give us light in this passage, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a funny thing that happens when you reach middle age, as I have, uh, is that you have kind of a context to look back uh, over the past. You know, you have some experience, you have um, some perspective, you've seen some things, and, and there's a track record. And, and so having context, you also have confidence looking forward. And, and by confidence, I don't necessarily mean positive, but you kind of like can foresee what's going to be kind of forecasting based upon what was. And that's kind of being in, in middle age. And so, you know, as I think back and look back, because I am that type of person, you know, my wife is not. She's like the type that, you know, today is today and she doesn't even know if there was a yesterday or if there will be a tomorrow. And, and I, and I kind of love her and hate her for that, all, all in the same because I'm jealous. But, you know, as I, as I think back and look back over my life, sometimes I, I, I am amazed at some of the events some of the things that have happened that at the time seem to be completely insignificant. They seem to mean absolutely nothing, but yet they, they weren't. They were significant. They were huge. They were uh, um, 
major things that happen in my life, you know, um, and that happens to us. We, we look back on our lives and we realize like something that we thought was just another day, it was just another decision, it was just another conversation, it turned out to be the thing that shaped our future in a way that we never could have imagined. Uh, my wife tells me about her parents, and when she was first born, they moved around a lot. They, they were mostly in New York State, but uh, they moved between Syracuse and Binghamton and Watertown, and they were kind of all over with her dad's job. And he kind of came to a place where um, they, they were encouraging him to keep moving, don't stay still. And he had the opportunity to go anywhere in the country, and he chose Rochester, New York, because he knew somebody there. You know, and, and, and I just think, like, if he hadn't chosen Rochester, New York, he had the whole country in front of him, I never would have met my wife. The most amazing thing that ever happened to me, you know. And to him, it's just like, yeah, let's go to Rochester. But for me, it was like the best thing that ever happened, you know. And there's so many things like that. Uh, I, I worked, um, I worked at, at this couple's house on Wingdale Mountain um, a couple of weeks ago, and they had just moved up from Brooklyn. And the, uh, the, the woman of the house found out that I was a pastor. You guys know how I feel about that. It's not my favorite thing um, when all of a sudden, like, people are expecting you to act a certain way and you don't want to play the role, you know. Um, so she's, like, telling me, she goes, she goes, I heard you're a pastor of a, a church in Poughkeepsie. She goes, is it Calgary Chapel? <laughs> I said, yes, it's right out of Canada, you know. We <laughs> you know? And, and she said, I love that church. She said, I was in, I went to Vassar College 10 years ago, and she said that college and career group was the lifeblood uh, for me during that time, you know, and this whole thing. And I was like, oh, wow, you know, that's great. And, like, I'm kind of curious, like, well, why aren't you walking with Jesus today? And, you know, and, the, and what happened between then and now and, and the whole thing. But, um, you know, we, we go along, and I'm having a conversation with, with her husband, um, who's a, a music composer. She plays music. And, uh, and I'm asking him, like, well, how did you guys meet? And he said, well, it's a funny thing. He said that, you know, she, she was consulting and she was at the place where I worked for one day only. And I almost called in sick that day. I almost didn't go. And, but I didn't. I went in even though I didn't want to. And that's where we met. And that's, you know, where, where things unfolded. And, and I'm just thinking, like, isn't that incredible how, how just the, the smallest thing that you could think is so insignificant that doesn't mean anything can change your entire life. It can just move so, 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 so hugely because of one thing. Well, we come to this moment in David's life where he just has a thought. He just has an idea. He just has a desire. He has something that he wants to do out of gratitude in response to all that God has done for him. And what he thinks is just a conversation that he's having with Nathan the prophet over a desire that he has in his heart, it turns out to be not only the thing that will define and shape David's future, but that will define and shape the redemptive history of God and reveal his purpose from the beginning all the way to the end. And you might be thinking tonight, as you open up to 2 Samuel chapter 7, that that's just another chapter in the Bible. And if I were to even say to you is, hey, tell me, what, is, what are the top three most influential chapters in the Bible? How many of you would say, well, 2 Samuel chapter 7, of course. You know, probably none of us. And yet that's exactly what's here. And I would go one step further to say that you may think that your decision to even come to church tonight was just a routine and flippant thing that was on the calendar. 
Doesn't mean much, isn't much, but I tell you this, is that if you can grab a hold of what's laid out here before us, not what God said to David, but what God reveals of himself and his relationship with his people, then this night could be the night that changes your life forever. Insignificant things that maybe aren't so insignificant. Let's get into it. In the first three verses, we hear and see David's proposal. The thing that he wants to do, he comes to Nathan the prophet. It says there in verse 1, as it sets up the context, it tells us that it came to pass that the king sat in his house and that the Lord had given him rest from all all around from all of his enemies. We know at this time that David is fully established as the king. Three times in the first three verses, David is called the king. He is never called David. His name is not listed there. It just says the king was. And then the king said to Nathan, and that Nathan said to the king, he is not even David anymore. He's just the king now. That's who he is. He's established in the place as God has promised. We're told that he is residing in his palace. So some time has passed. Enough time for Hiram to come from Syria and supply the lumber and build the house. We know that the ark has been brought into Jerusalem. David's been there for some time. There's been some battles and some things that have happened. And now we see that David is at rest. And this is a brand new season for King David because he has never been at rest at any time in his life all the way up until now. We, we, we have seen David uh, 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 fighting with Saul and his enemies. We've seen the Philistines. We've seen the house being built. We saw the ark being brought in. And, and now, all of a sudden, everything just slows down. And for the first time, we see David sit down. It says that he sat in his house. Now, we have seen David run. We've seen David fight. We've seen him react. We've seen him solve problems. We've seen David interact with people. And all of those things, we've seen David does all of that well. But does David sit well? Because that's a whole new test. And for people that don't like to sit, that's a really good question to ask. <laughs> you know, do I know how to sit well? We're going to find out that David doesn't sit too well because we're going to see what happens a little bit later when he's sitting, when he should be fighting, you know, but for here it's not so uh, bad, you know, but there are some people that they really thrive when they're in the grind of life, when they're in the climb, when they're in the battle, when they're, they're working it out and working it through and discovering the purpose and the call and they're fighting and they, they do well, but they don't do so well once they arrive at the destination. Then they kind of self-destruct. Then they kind of fall apart once they succeed. And David, we know that he is a doer. He's a man of action. He wants to be doing something, which is why he comes up with this. He says, I don't like this sitting around thing. I need to do something. You know, It's funny, those that... Uh, those that kind of study human productivity, they, 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 they classify people into three categories. They say there are thinkers, there are doers, and there are seers or visionaries. You know, and, and, and really, I, I kind of disagree with that analysis. I think that everyone is all three. I think that we start as thinkers, as we discover 
what we're supposed to do, we become doers. And then as we get experience, we become seers because we can perceive. And the only people that kind of never do that are people that just get stuck and never do anything, you know. But David is fully a doer. And David at this point doesn't want to sit. He doesn't feel right unless he's doing something. Anybody here like that? Or am I the only one, (laughs) you know? And so David asks Nathan, essentially he says, I've got this desire. I've got this thing that I want to do. I have acted on impulse before and really screwed things up. You guys remember the ark story, (laughs) you know, when David didn't ask, he didn't consult, he didn't pray. And so David goes to the prophet and he says, look, I don't feel right about this. I'm living in a palace. The ark is in a tent covered with animal skins. And I feel like God has established this place. He's established this nation. There should be a temple. There should be a place where the ark is contained. And I would like to build that. And so Nathan hears David's desire knows that it's coming from the right place, and it is coming from the right place. And at first glance, he responds to David, essentially by saying, hey, you're the king, all right? It's within your means, it's within your authority, it's within your ability. You have it in your heart, and you have the spirit of God, so God may be very practically just putting this in your heart to do, and you've got a good track record with the things that God is doing for you. And I know that God is with you, Nathan says. Everything that you're doing is blessed. And so Nathan says, do it. Do whatever is in your heart to do. Everything on the surface sounds good. David is excited. Nathan goes home, but then God has something to say about it. We see in verse 4, God replies, And it tells us there in verse 4 that it came to pass that night that the word of the Lord came unto Nathan. Now, that sounds kind of common to us because we are people that read the Bible. And because we're reading the Bible, we hear the word of the Lord came to Nathan. And we just think, okay, well, that's what prophets do. They hear the word of the Lord. But this phrase is not one that is used very often in this segment of God's redemptive history. Only five times over the course of probably a hundred years do we hear this phrase used. The, the, The phrase, the context of it is not the written word. It's not the logos, like what God told Isaiah to wrote down or Moses write this down. That, that's not the word that he's talking about here, but but really the word is translated in these ways. Words business, report, thing, or sentence. In other words, this is like God intervening in a situation and saying, I've got something to say about what's going on right now. And just so you understand the the times that God does this, because it's rare. We're told back in the early chapters, 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 1, it says that the word of the Lord was rare in those days, that it was not common for God to do this. We heard the word of the Lord come to Samuel concerning Saul when he was rejected and refused. God intervened and said, I've got something to say about this, about Saul. We see it here where God intervenes. David has a plan. God says, I've got something to say about that. We won't see this again until way later in David's ministry when he numbers the people. He calls for a census 
And God's not happy about it. And God sends the prophet Gad. The word of the Lord is revealed to Gad and says, I ain't happy with David. Go tell him he's in trouble. And then again, we don't hear it again until Solomon is king. And God comes directly to Solomon and the word of the Lord comes to him and says, Solomon, if you toe the line and you do what's right, you're going to be happy. But if you don't, you're not. You know, so this isn't something that happens every day. The idea is that God interrupts and intervenes in what would otherwise just be life as usual. Now, what does God say to Nathan concerning David's desire? I love how it starts. He says, go tell, listen to it, my servant David. Remember how David was, was, was named in the first three verses? And the king. And the king. And Nathan said to the king, he is the king. And I wonder if David was like kind of wearing that a little bit. I might, I might, you know, <laughs> you know, like King David, you know, I will be addressed as the king. You see my ring, you know. And not that that was the kind of person that David was, but that's what it says. It says the king, the king. And then God comes in and says, tell my servant. David, don't forget that the people's king is still the Lord's servant. And God calls him that over and over and over again. And above all else, David is a servant. Understand this, that authority and submission are correlated. You cannot have authority without having submission first. If submission breaks down, authority breaks down. The foundation of David's authority is in his submission to God. The foundation of any authority is in the submission to the authority that has appointed it as an authority. And there is a, a, an order there that must be adhered to, and David is the champion of it. He is very submitted to God. Okay, so God raises the question at hand, and he says to David, shall you build a house for my name? So God just raises the question. And then God gives his answer in, uh, all the way up through verse 7. God says basically, look, David, I appreciate it, but I don't do houses. If anything, I will do a trailer, mobile homes. I do tents. I, I will move from place to place with my people, but I have never asked for a place like this. I've never asked any of the people that have ruled before you, and I'm not asking you to do this. I am not like the gods of the nations, the idols that have ornate temples and that show off according to the riches that are, are, are placed there. That is not me. And then God says, here's why. He says, because I am a God who walks with my people where they go. They don't come visit me. I walk with them. That's the kind of God that I am, David. And so therefore, you are not going to build a house for me. Uh, they don't visit me. Now, in the New Testament, we see this portrayed in the person of Jesus. Because Jesus said in, in the book of Revelation, he is pictured as the one who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. And, and then we're told that those lampstands are the churches. Those are the people of God. And so we don't see God ever dwelling in a house. God is one who dwells with his people. That's where he wants to be. He walks with us. And he meets us where we are. We don't come and find him in some building or in some place. It's amazing to me how much it's in us to try to build a house for God. 
we do the same exact thing that David does. It's in us. I think of Jacob. Remember when Jacob first went out, he left, he had to run. And, and he goes that night and he comes to this place. It was just called a place. And there was nothing there and he needed to sleep, so he used a pillow for a rock. And that night God gave him a vision. And in that place, he saw a ladder that extended from heaven to earth and the angels of God were going up and down. And it says that the Lord was on the top of that ladder. And it says that Jacob woke up and he said, surely the Lord is in this place. And God was in that place. But David called it by a name. He called it Bethel. Do you know what Bethel means? It means house of God. He says, this is the house of God. I found it. Here it is. This is where God dwells. God never came back. We never see in Bethel again that vision and there's the ladder. And how many people went there and they were looking around waiting for it to open up. God says, no, I'm not going to live there. We think of Peter and James and John. Remember on the, the, the mountain of transfiguration? And suddenly Jesus is glorified and they hear the voice of God speaking from heaven. And, and they see this amazing vision of the glory that's to come. And what does Peter say? He says, Lord, we need to build some houses here. He says, this is the place. This is where we need to stay right now. And that's what we do. We taste God. He meets us. He finds us in a place. And we immediately want to build a house there. I, I woke up and I, I, I prayed a certain way. I started my day a certain way. And, and I prayed to God. I addressed him in a certain way. And, and then I, I prayed for other people, and then I put my needs secondary, and, and then I just prayed for his blessing, and, and, I, and I, God, you met me in that place. That's how it's done. I'm going to build a house right here. I'm going to wake up at this time. I'm going to pray this outline this way for this many minutes, and God, you're going to meet me like you did that day. And then we try again, and we go, where's God? It was so powerful the first time. We go for a walk in, in a beautiful place. We sit by a waterfall and we just sense the presence of God. He meets us there. He comes. And it's not that he wasn't there and now he is, but he just opens something inside of us and we, we taste of him. And, and we say, Lord, you're in this place. Lord, thank you so much for what you're doing in my life. And, and our emotions are affected and our mind is clear. And we find it easy to pray. And he's talking to us and his presence is real. And then we go from, we say, God, you're so amazing. And then we go back there. We're like, God, meet me again. And we sit by that waterfall and we're like, this is just annoying. It's loud. Like, God, where are you? I remember there was one time, it was about five years ago, we went out west. We took our whole family and we were in Arches National Park. And, you know, we're walking around, there's people all over the place. And, and I remember this one little trail that kind of went by this one arch right by the border of the park. And, and there was a person coming back from it. And, and I went all by myself and I went through and the path kind of ended. It stopped and there was like this sandy, like desert um, expanse. And then it was kind of in a valley. There was like a, a big rock wall, probably 100 feet on the other side. And as soon as I stepped, like right to the end of the path, that there was something so spiritual that happened. It wasn't like I didn't like see angels and my eyes didn't like roll back in my head. But the presence of the Lord met me so directly that I just knew it. there was just a stillness. It was almost like sound stopped. Everything stopped and, and the Lord was just there. 
And, and Georgia was back by the main thing about probably 50 feet behind me. And I just turned around and I just motioned for her to come. And she came and, and we stood there and, and it just hit us and we just stood there. I don't know if it was like four minutes, five minutes, we just stood there. And it was like the Lord was so there, like I've never experienced any other time. He didn't say anything. It was, it was just his presence. It was peace beyond what you can describe. And then it stopped. And we turned around and we went on for the rest of our day. And I don't know that God has ever gone back to that spot in that way again like he met us that day. And I don't even know why he did it. You know, but, but why is it that we try to build these houses for God? We try to box them in. I prepare a message a certain way at a certain time with a certain type of outline. I approach it a certain way. And, and, and God just moves in the service. I just feel his presence. It's so amazing. And next week I'm like, I got it. I nailed it down. I figured it out. I know how to do this. And I prepare the message the same way. And I can't find two words to go together to save my life. And I feel like a moron. And, you know, it's awful. You know, it's like, God, why? Why can't you just live where I want you to live and do it the way I want you to do it? He said, I don't do that. I will not live in the house that you want to build for me. You're not going to confine me to your houses. And listen, that is a good thing. Because if God confines us to, or if we confine God to our houses and he obeys, then we will never expect or meet with him anywhere else but in the houses that we have built. I like God's reply to David after saying, I have never dwelt in any house and I've never asked for any house. Because God now talks to David through Nathan the prophet and he's going to give him a couple of things. He's going to say, I took, then he's going to say, I was, then he's going to say, I have, and then he's going to say, I will. So God's going to talk to David now and he says this to him. To the one who wants to confine him to a house, God says to David, first of all, he says, I took you. And you see that in verse 8. He says, I took you from the sheep coat, from following the sheep to be ruler over my people. I came and found you, not in my house, but out in the field. For, and I took you from a low, obscure, common, and predictable life, and I made you the king of Israel. I came to you, and I found you you, you didn't come find me. Then God says, moreover, in verse 9, he says that I was with you wherever you went, and I have cut off your enemies out of your sight and have made you a great name like unto the name of the great men of the earth. He says, David, I was with you when you were frustrated because your dad interrupted your schedule and wanted you to bring cheese to your brother's. I was there with you. David, I was with you when you saw Goliath come out from behind the army lines of the Philistines. And I was the one that put it in your heart to say, why is it that you think you can defy the armies of the living God? I was with you. David, I was with you when you felt abandoned in the palace and the spear was thrown by an insane king and it missed your head by a couple of inches and stuck to the wall. And you didn't know if you were going to live through the night. I was with you there. David, I was with you when Jonathan shot the three arrows that 
held your destiny in the balance and you felt like you were completely forsaken and you couldn't sense my presence at all and you thought that I was gone from your life, I was with you in that place. David, I was with you when you wandered unarmed into Gath thinking that no one would know who you were and you almost died there. I preserved you. I was with you in the cave. I was with you for the year and a half that you were in Ziklag sinning because you thought you were done. And I brought resolution to all of the questioning of those days. That didn't happen in any of the houses that anyone built for me. I came and I met with you. And God says, then I have made your name great like the great men of history. And you know what's amazing? Is that God did it while David had no idea it was happening. He was becoming one of the greatest names that would ever walk on the planet while he didn't know it was happening. Because God doesn't do it in a way that we can understand it. He does it the way he does it. And now God says, now I'm going to do something. And here comes the I will. The I will begins uh, in verse 10. And there's seven of them if you're counting and you're taking notes. Number one is given to us in verse 10. God says, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own, move no more. And the children of wickedness will afflict them. And then God goes on to say, I already did this. That's what he says at the beginning of verse 11. He says, I've been doing this imperceptibly since the days of the judges. And now here you are. You see it. I've planted my people in their place. Even as I said, I have done. Now, now listen, I, I want you to hear this, okay? Because some of you that are here tonight are probably in that place where you're waiting and longing for that to happen. That there's stability in your life and you're no longer shifting around, wondering what's going to happen tomorrow, being afflicted by all the, the various things and trials in your life. Listen, God's way and God's track record is that he's going to bring you past the instability of those days and he will bring normal stability into your life. Just like he did for Israel common, he will do for us common. And specifically, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Furthermore, the reason why God says it here, even though he already did it, is because what God has done in the past is always a proof of what he promises he will do in the future. And I hope that you can look back over your life in the short term or the long term and you can see some of the things that God has already done for you. Because what that is to serve for you is not just an opportunity to give thanks, but it is a testimony that he is not going to stop the work that he began. What did Paul say to the Romans? He said that he that spared not his own son but freely gave him up for us all, how much more will he not now freely give us all things? In other words, if he did that, why is he going to stop now? And so God says, I will put that place. Number two in verse 11, God says to David, moreover, the Lord says to you that he will make you a house. You want to build me a house, David. I'm going to build you a house. Now, David's going, I already have a house. I'm sitting in a house of cedar. That's not what God is talking about. The house 
that God will build for David is the dynasty of kings that will proceed from him. It is his posterity. It is his lineage. It is what his line of people will become and what they will do. David understood this, and God makes it very clear. He says, I'm going to bring you a lineage of kings. He defines in verse 12 by saying, this is the third I will. He says that when your days are fulfilled and you sleep with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you, which shall proceed out of your bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. In other words, God is saying to David here that I'm going to set up your family. It is going to be your direct descendant that comes after you. And notice what he says about him. Verse 13, it says that he shall build a house for my name. Now, in the short term, and I want you to follow me here for a minute. In the short term, God is talking about Solomon. David's son Solomon will be established as king, and Solomon will build a temple, and notice what God says, for my name. He doesn't say for my presence, to confine me, because I will live in that house then. No, he says that I will give him the privilege of building a temple for my name's sake, that my name might be there. And in the short term, God is speaking concerning Solomon. But then God goes on even further, and notice what he says. He says, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. What does that mean? It means that what I'm saying to you, David, goes way beyond just Solomon and his privilege of building me a temple. But I'm going to establish his throne forever. And the idea here, and this is what God is saying, and this is why this is so huge, is that God is telling David that it will be the Messiah that will come through your lineage. The Christ, the Savior of the world, the one that was foretold to Abraham and to Moses and that is seen, pictured. God is saying, David, he will be a direct descendant of yours, his throne will be established, his authority will be established forever. Now watch what he says next. The fifth, I'm sorry, the sixth I will is in verse 14. He says, I will be his father and he shall be my son. No longer speaking about Solomon, but speaking of all of David's descendants, specifically that of Jesus, the Messiah, who would be called the Son of God. He said, I will be his father and he will be my son. Why is it that Jesus consistently and always spoke of God as his father? In my father's house are many mansions. I do always those things which please my father. Our Father, Jesus said when you pray, which are in heaven. Jesus always addressing God as his Father. The Pharisees understood when Jesus called God Father that he was declaring himself to be the Messiah, which was why they wanted to stone him for blasphemy because they said you make yourself equal with God. Jesus was declaring that he was the fulfillment of what God is speaking through Nathan to David concerning his coming into the world. Now watch this. 
I will be his father. He will be my son. Ready? If he commit iniquity, I will, this is the seventh and final I will in the statement of God. He says, I will chasten him. You say, wait a minute. Who is he talking about? Is he talking about Solomon and Rehoboam and Jeroboam and all of those lines of kings that will come? Or is he talking about Jesus? Who, who he was now, is he, wait, I'm confused. If he sin, if he commits iniquity, I will chasten him. I thought that Jesus was without sin. Who's he talking about? He's talking about Jesus. You say, wait a minute. Are you saying that Jesus committed iniquity and that God chastened his iniquity and that he's called sinless, not because he was sinless, but because God dealt with his? No. Jesus was perfect and without sin. He was the Lamb of God, pure and spotless, completely without blemish. What does this mean? The Bible says that he who knew no sin became sin for us. So that we could become the righteousness of God even in him. When Jesus was in the garden of Gethsemane, and it says that he was greatly distressed to the point where he began to sweat drops of blood. He was so stressed out over what was about to happen. Jesus said, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. What cup was Jesus talking about? He was talking about the cup that belonged to you and I that was filled with all of the sin and the iniquity and the transgression and the rebellion and the darkness that's both in us and also committed by us. All of our sin is filled up in that cup. On the night of the communion, the same night that Jesus was asking that that cup not be given to him, on that night, Jesus took the cup that was in front of him. And he said, this is the cup of the blood of the covenant, the blood that is shed for you. And then he gave that cup to his disciples and he said, you guys drink this. Jesus took the cup of purity that rightfully belonged to him and he gave it to those whom he called. And then a few hours later in the garden, a cup was placed in front of him that he desperately did not want to drink. But Jesus said, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And sure enough, Jesus drank that cup, the Bible says through the prophet Jeremiah, all the way to the dregs, meaning that Jesus took the cup of our sin and he drank it all. He absorbed all of it in himself. He who knew no sin became sin for us. And when Jesus drank that cup, the Father's eye looked at Jesus as a guilty, sinful man. If he commit iniquity, what will happen if he is found with iniquity? Notice back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14, he says, I will chasten him Chasten, by the way, doesn't mean correct. It means judge. The word is yachach. There'll be a test on that. No, <laughs> but the word is to judge. He says, I will judge him, watch this, with the rod of men and with the stripes 
of the children of men. Shortly after Jesus drank the cup of our sin, it says that he was covered his face with a burlap sack and he was smitten with a rod of the children of men. They hit him with a stick. And then shortly thereafter, the 39 lashes to elicit confession were laid. The stripes, by his stripes, the stripes that we were healed, those stripes were laid upon Jesus. God is telling David that the, that the Messiah will be his descendant and that he will absorb the chastening for the sins of men. But my mercy shall not depart away from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And then God sums it up in verse 16 by saying, And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. Your house, David's family. Your kingdom, David's realm. And your throne, David's authority will be established forever. And then the vision, verse 17, it says, according to all these words and according to all this vision, so did Nathan speak unto David. God says, you want to do this for me, but let me tell you what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to send my son into the world as a descendant of yours, and he's going to die for the sins of your household and that for all of humanity. And his throne will be an eternal throne that will last forever. Well, verse 18, we see David's response to God's reply. Watch verse 18. So David the king went in, and he sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house, that you have brought me this far? You ever sat and, and just let that wash over you for a minute? Lord, who am I that you've brought me this far? And David thinking about everything that God has done thus far to bring him to where he is. And then, and then just realizing, he's, Lord, who am I that you've brought me this far? And this, all that is right now, was yet a small thing in your sight. That which was huge to me, to be in this place that I'm in right now, was huge to me, but it was small to you. But you have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And is this the manner of man, O Lord God? God, is, is this the way you deal with humans? That you would just continue to be good and continue to give and continue to show grace? You've got things sized up for me that I can't even fathom. And is this the way that you work in lives? And of course, the implication is absolutely it is. You say, well, David was the king. Of course, God is going to do this for the king. No, 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 no. David wasn't the king. And God didn't do this for David because he was the king. Do you know why God did this for David? Because he was, that's right, the servant. He was the servant of the Lord. And God made David king and great because David was a servant. Do you know that uh, distance, how far you go in your existence, I'm not even going to say in your life, in, because you'll think I'm talking about this life. I'm talking about your existence. That distance is not measured by starting point, but by trajectory. The track that you're in. That's what measures distance. And trajectory is determined by two things. Position and posture. Position 
is essentially whose servant you are or whose bow, let's put it that way, you're in. If you think about the trajectory of an arrow that is, that is launched, that arrow is going to fly and it's going to follow a trajectory. It's going to go somewhere. And your trajectory, the trajectory of your existence, will be determined by whose bow you're in. David was in God's bow. He was God's servant, and thus that's why his trajectory was what it would become, that which would go on and on and on and on and on and on last forever. Not just position, but also posture. Posture is where you aimed. David was in God's bow, but he was also surrendered to God's call in God's cause. And if your posture is that of being a servant of God, and your position is that of surrender to his will for your life, then there is no limit to where your trajectory will take you. Most people, their trajectory in their mind is, is like a, a, a rainbow. It's gonna, I'm going to shoot out, I'm going to grow, I'm going to hit my peak, and then I'm going to fade off into the sunset, and we'll see how far I go. That's an earthly trajectory. But God's trajectory goes beyond this life, and it continues into eternity. And it's always up and to the right. That's what God is saying to David. He's saying, David, you think that you just being the king and sitting in your palace and having rest, you think this is where it's at? This is just the beginning. Wait till you see what happens after your days are expired. Wait till you see what my plan for you and your descendants are in the ages to come. You're so short-sighted, you don't even see it. You don't even know it. But David, this is, this is what I'm going to do. And David goes, God, this is, this is your way? This is what you do with men? In spite of what you know of me? That's what he says back then in, next in verse 20. He says, what more can David say unto you for you, Lord God? Know your servant. I, I don't understand. You know me and yet you still would do this for me? And then David does something so beautifully, just receives it. He says, for your word's sake and according to all your own heart, have you done all these great things to make your servant know them? He goes, God, I, 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 I don't understand it. I don't deserve it. I know me and you know me, and yet you're still going to do these things for me. And God he says, I'm just going to, I'll take it. If you're going to do it, I'm going to receive it. How do, you, how do you respond to the things that God says about you? How do you respond to the things that God says he's going to do for you? I, I know me, I'm inclined to doubt them. Because I think somehow I have to earn it. David hears it and he just receives it. Now, I am not going to read verses 22 through 29. Okay, but I'm going to tell you what's in them and I want you to, to, to read them. Okay, here's what it is. Number one is in verses 22 through 24, David just gives God praise for the things that have just been revealed. He just takes a minute and he stops and he just extols God. He just declares his goodness. He declares his, his greatness. He just says, thank you, God, for who you are, that you would be so good. And he just gives thanks for those verses. And then, now, this is huge. Verses 25 through 29, David prays back to God the things that God spoke to him. So David says, God, you said you're going to do this. Do it. God, you said you're going to do this. Amen. God, you said you want me to be this. I'll, I'm, I'm in. I surrender. I am whatever you want to do with me, God, that's what I want you to do with me. And that's huge that David, because David is essentially going along with God. He's not saying, oh, God, all right, you're going to do this, fine. David says, no, God, I'm in. In tandem, in step, I want to do this with you. Okay, now listen, big picture, and we're getting ready to close here. I know that people are 
antsy. We're almost done. You know. In the big picture, this is one of the most amazing moments in David's life. And do you realize that it comes from a no? I mean, David, David had a desire. He wanted to do something. He wanted to go in a certain direction, and God said no. You ever have God say no to something that you want to do? You ever have a desire? You ever have a trajectory that you think that your life is going to follow? And you put it before God, and you're like, God, I really want to see this happen. This is my dream. This is, I feel like this is what I made for. And God's like, no. That's exactly what just happened to David. God said, no, David, you're not going to do this thing that you, that you really, 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 really want to do. Now, because David was willing to say, all right, let me listen, God let him in on what he was going to do instead. And I think David was happy with it. <laughs> I think he liked it. Understand this, that every no is a yes to something better. If God says no to something that you desire, it's because he's going to do something that you didn't expect. Sometimes that's hard to swallow, okay? And here's why. Because sometimes what I'm asking God to do is to bring a healing. Sometimes I'm asking God to mend a relationship that really needs to be mended because it's very significant and very important. Sometimes what I'm asking God for is deliverance from something that is an affliction or an addiction or something that is plaguing me constantly. Sometimes the request is for an opportunity or a door to open up that will move things forward. Sometimes the request is for an experience, something that, 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 uh, that I feel like is important to me. And sometimes God says no. And sometimes it can be a very challenging thing when God says no to the things that we're asking for. But understand this. Because of who he is, what we possess when we belong to him is what Peter called a living hope. And hope is the absolute expectation of coming good. And the hope that God gives is a hope that gets deep underneath every desire and every part of our being, and it lives there. It's a living hope. It's not a robotic hope, and it's not a hopeful hope. It's a living hope. It's deep, and it's alive. And when we give God access by agreeing with what he's doing, even if we don't understand it, we are inviting his hope to come in for what he's going to do instead of what we're hoping he would do. We're saying yes, and it's surrender. Now, for David, God said, let me tell you what I'm doing. And many of us, we say, well, that would be great. <laughs> you know, if God would just tell me what he's doing, I would be happy. But he doesn't tell me what I'm doing. Let me tell you this. No matter what you are thinking about right now and struggling with right now and praying about right now that you feel like God is forgetting, not hearing, ignoring, listen. If God told you right now what he was doing, you would say, do it, Lord. You would say, that's what I want. The worship team can come because we're closing. But I want to ask you or, or tell you or lead you in some way and just explain what is the proper response to, to this message, to, to what's going on here and how it applies to us. Listen, whatever you are going through right now, whatever God is doing in your life, that you would say to him, Lord, your will be done and not mine. 
And God, you do as you have determined for my life because I know what you're doing and what you want is infinitely greater than what I want. And, and for some of you, you're in a place right now where your life direction is not what you thought it would be or what, what you thought it should be or what you wanted. For some of you, marriage is not what you thought it would be or could be or should be or what you wanted. For some, you've fallen out of trust with God because of certain things that have happened. You've stopped trusting him. Or some fallen out of time because things aren't happening. Okay? Listen to me. God will not dwell in the house that you built for him. Okay, you think, oh, Lord, this is what I want, and this is what I envision, and this is what I hope my life would be, and Lord, would you, would you, come, into, would you come into this house, this plan, this, what I've got here? And God says, no, I don't, I don't do that. But what I will do is I will build you a house, and if you want to come along for the ride with me, I will do exceedingly abundantly above all that you could ever ask, think, or imagine. And the choice is yours to whether or not in the place where maybe you're disappointed with what's not, that you might say, God, I praise you for what is. And I say amen to what your plan might be. Is this the manner of men with God? I think of what Jesus said. Jesus said in John chapter 14, right before he went back to heaven, he said, let not your heart be troubled because you believe in God but believe also in me. He said, for in my Father's house are many mansions, and I am going to prepare a place for you. And yes, ultimately, we await the kingdom that will appear and the glory of it that's eternal. But the house, the mansion that Jesus has prepared is sure and steadfast, and it's yours if you take it. He has gone to prepare a place for you. This is the manner of God with men. Father, I just pray tonight, right now, Lord, for anyone that's in this room, that's here in this place or within the sound of my voice, that is wrestling and struggling because you're not following in to what they want and desire. And I pray for anyone that's here tonight that has stopped trusting you, that has pulled back and withdrawn, that has said, God, if you're not gonna, then I'm not gonna. Lord, I pray tonight that they would have a Nathan experience. I pray, Lord, that they would see your goodness. I pray that they would see your stripes. That they'd see that you absorb the wrath. And that he that spared not his own son, but freely gave him up for us all, how much more will he not now freely give us all things? Lord, I pray in Jesus' name that what you've prepared for each of us would be fully realized and experienced. That you would give to us the position of a servant and the posture of surrender and the faith to declare thy will be done. Lord, would you do that in us now? Would you help us, Lord, that we might return to our first love? Thank you, Lord, for your ways. Thank you for who you are. And if there's anyone here tonight that doesn't know you personally, Lord, I pray that you would reveal yourself as the Savior, the shepherd, the friend of sinners. And that you would stir up faith in every heart. 
And so, Father, we thank you, Lord, for this chapter. We thank you for this truth. May it be for us, Lord, as it was with David, through the name and person of your son, Jesus. We ask it in his name. Amen. Let's stand. Thanks for joining us for the Pastor Nick Santo podcast. To regularly receive these teachings, be sure to subscribe so you can get it automatically when it's released. If you find this material helpful, please share it and help us get the message of Jesus out to others. We also appreciate your feedback, so if you would, leave us a review in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts, or email us at pastor.nickpc at gmail.com. Until next time, may you continue to love, learn, and live the way of Jesus.